Good morning, church. It's great to see you. This is a picture of my dad's watch. And as you, you might know, uh, two months ago yesterday, my dad passed away. Um, and it was somewhat unexpected. He had some major surgery and then had some complications after that. Um, and so one of the first things that I went to look for after, uh, after he passed was his watch. Um, this was the watch. He bought it in 1982. It's a Hoyer Pasadena. And uh, it's this automatic watch that he wore for most of his working life uh, when I was in the house. And uh, we had this morning routine every morning, and I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. We would sit at the kitchen table. I'd be eating my Golden Grams, <laughs> and uh, my dad would be drinking his coffee and had some toast, and uh, would be reading the newspaper, and he would have the watch in his hand. And he would just tap it against his palm. See, it's, it's an automatic watch. It doesn't have a battery. It just has a rotor in the back, which spins as you move or as you move it like this. And it spins the rotor around and winds the spring, and that powers the watch for the day. And every morning, he would sit there and tap this watch against his palm and then put it on. He'd slide the sports page over to me. Uh, we would talk a little bit, and then we would go our separate ways him to work and me to school. And when this watch became my watch, it didn't necessarily, it didn't magically make me all of a sudden his son, right? Um, but what it is, is it's a reminder of my dad. When I wear it, when I look at it, it reminds me of a lot about my dad, his character, um, the things that he was about. Uh, for one, you know, he loved mechanical things. He loved to tinker with things, and he passed that on to me. It's the reason I get into trouble working on vehicles and having to fix things that I break. Um, he had a strong work ethic. My dad never, ever, ever missed a day of work. And he pushed me to have perfect attendance at school. I never missed a day of school. Um, and that carried on into work. I have a really hard time staying home when I don't feel even, you know, really poorly, uh, when I feel really sick, I still have a hard time just thinking I can stay home and that's okay. Um, it's a little different nowadays, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> you kind of get told you're staying home. Um, <laughs> uh, but most importantly, it reminds me of my dad's presence. Day in and day out, he was there. Uh, not just at the kitchen table, but baseball games, football games, choir concerts, when I sang in church, when I taught, all of those things, he was always there, and he was always telling me that he was proud of me and that he loved me. So there's a lot wrapped up in this little material thing. Um, and when I put the watch on, it's an opportunity for me to remember him, but it's also an opportunity for me to tell the world what he's like. And it reminds me to point to him and be like, this is what my dad was like. These are the things that he was about. And these are the things that he passed on to me. Not just his name, but so much more. In our passage for this morning, we're looking at the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And when we look at these eight character traits that Jesus talks about, I think it's very similar to this watch. When we do these things, when we walk in the way of Jesus, it doesn't magically make us his children. The Spirit has done that. His death on the cross and his resurrection has given us new life, and we are born again and made alive together with Christ, and we are his kids. But when we do these things, it's a way for us to put on Christ, 
a way for us to be a reflection of him, to remind ourselves what he is like and also tell the world what he is like. This is what my father is like. So let's go ahead and and look at our text for this morning. It's Matthew chapter 5. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I hit the wrong button. Sorry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The early church looked at Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, as kind of the key to Jesus' teaching, one of the most important sections in all of Scripture. And there's a tendency in our day to kind of relegate it to the past and be like, that's, that's law. That's something that we can't live up to, so it doesn't matter, and it doesn't apply to us as believers. That's before Christ died, so it doesn't apply anymore. But I would argue that Jesus is telling us what his character for us will be like, and it's not a law from the outside in, but a law from the inside out. So let's back up a little bit, because as we spend the next three weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount as we go through Matthew, um, I want us just to understand why we should listen, why it's important, why it's of value for us today. And so back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses was telling the people of Israel what was about to happen. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses was telling of this prophet who would come after him, who would be like him, but greater than him, because the people of Israel didn't always listen to him, did they? He had a hard time over those 40 years just trying to get them up to the edge of the Jordan River so they might make it into the promised land. And Moses didn't get to take them into the promised land. But there would be a prophet who was coming who would bring them into the promised land, but not just physically, but into the presence of the Lord himself, the true promised land, the one that Israel was just a picture of. And Matthew, in his gospel, he's writing to the Jews, and he's being very clear that Jesus is this one that was promised, this anointed one, this Messiah that they were waiting for. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but just look at the similarities. They were both descendants of Abraham. There was a slaughter of innocents surrounding their birth. They both fled their homeland. They both... Um, came out of Egypt. They both went through the water. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul refers to the Red Sea experience as Moses' baptism. And then immediately after that, they went into the wilderness. And that leads us to our passage for today. Then from there, he went up into the mountain. And it doesn't 
usually get translated that way, but in Greek, it's phrased the same way as uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same way that they refer to Moses going into the mountain. Now, for reference, this is the Mount of Beatitudes. Luke called it the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, it's not much of a mountain. It's kind of like a, a hill with a large, flat space. You can see how they would refer to it differently, right? But Matthew's being very intentional to call it the mountain because something important is about to happen in Matthew 5 through 7. And so three times in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which you'll see in your footnotes on your Bible is LXX. Okay, that's what that represents. Um, Those three times where Moses went up into Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. He went up into the mountain, which is a weird way, a very unique way of describing it. It's only used those three times in Exodus, in the whole Old Testament. And Matthew uses that phrasing specifically about Jesus going into the mountain to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's not the same kind of law that the Ten Commandments were. It's a different kind of law. It's one that's a law of the heart, right? Something that comes from the inside out rather than the outside in. The scribes and Pharisees were great at trying to keep the Ten Commandments on the outside, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs with dead bones on the inside. That's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 33, the promise of the new covenant. And he says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, the Lord is giving us his spirit and that spirit is what is going to empower us to even be able to keep any of this stuff. We can't do it on our own. And that's the point. We are powerless in ourselves to keep these commands from the Sermon on the Mount. But he is at work in us and will empower us to do these things so that he might be glorified and that his kingdom would expand in and through us. So just a little summary of this. Again, we can't spend a ton of time here, but Jesus is this new Moses, the one greater than Moses, the one who will successfully lead us through this new exodus, not just an exodus from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death which leads to a new creation. We are born again because of what he has done and how he has led us out of that. And he gives us this new covenant, one that he empowers us to keep. He does all the work, all the heavy lifting. And that is the start of a new kingdom. See, the kingdom of God right now is not a physical territory. The kingdom of God is our hearts. That's where his territory is right now. One day there will be an external future kingdom when the new Jerusalem comes down and there's a new heaven and a new earth and we will reign in that physical territory together with Christ, the Bible says. But that's not here yet. Right now it's the territory of our hearts and our lives. And as we live these things out, we help demonstrate what the kingdom is like. We give a portrait of this kingdom of God and what it will be like forevermore. And that's what he wants in us. Uh, if you want to dive deeper into the whole Sermon on the Mount, I really recommend this book. This is one of my professors, Chuck Corals. Um, he was talking about writing this book when he taught our class on the Sermon on the Mount, and it really made me love the sermon. And uh, eventually he finished this book uh, a few years ago, and I just highly recommend it. It's excellent. So 
Uh, just a little plug for Dr. Corals. So as we, we dive into these Beatitudes, these eight character traits, uh, there are a couple of things that we need to understand. Um, you'll notice that the first and the last one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise is the same. And in literary terms, that's called an inclusion. What that means is everything between there is talking about one group. There aren't some who are poor in spirit, some who are meek, some who mourn, some who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is all one group of people. Jesus' disciples ought to embody all of these things. This is what he's doing in us and wants for all of us. So it's one picture. Uh, two, it's emphasizing the third person. Notice it's a little awkward in the phrasing. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It sounds like Yoda speaks, right? Um, but that's intentional. The emphasis is on them theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven they and they only will be comforted okay Uh, that's very deliberate in jesus phrasing here um two or third uh divine passive that's this idea that when you see in this in the scripture this idea it will be done for them but it doesn't say who's going to do it uh it's assumed that god is going to be the one who is going to fulfill these promises the Lord is the one who's going to accomplish these things in and through us. Uh, and then fourth, as we just talked about, the kingdom is here in part, but one day we will experience it in full. Uh, so there's kind of an already but not yet component to these promises. We will experience some of the blessing now, but we will experience it in full when we see the Lord face to face. Okay, so as we dive into this one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. That first word there, blessed, gets translated a couple different ways. It gets translated as happy or fortunate, but all of those are kind of lesser translations uh, than I think the word blessed. We keep trying to be clever with it, but I think this is the simplest and clearest. Um, it says, rather than happiness in its mundane sense, it refers to the deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who now begin to experience its fulfillment. The kingdom of God has come and we have experienced and met with the Lord and he has changed us from the inside out. We are beginning to see the fruit of what he's doing in us and one day we will see that come to completion. That's this idea of blessedness. And you'll notice that each of these promises, uh, if you replace the word for with the word because, uh, that's what for means in in these uh, beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? So that's, they're blessed because they're going to receive this promise. This is a picture of that blessing. Okay. The reverse is not always true, right? Blessedness can include happiness, but happiness doesn't always include blessedness. They don't go both ways. So what does poor in spirit mean? I've had a lot of questions about that as I've been talking with people this week. Uh, to be poor is to cower, to bow down timidly, to be beggarly, to be dependent completely on others for support. For help. In the first century, to be a beggar uh, was usually because you had some kind of disability that prevented you from any meaningful work. Right? Uh, in the first century, uh, things were limited. So uh, the blind, the lame, the lepers, like they were forced to be beggars in order to provide for themselves. That's all they could do. It was not panhandling. Uh, this was just desperation. This is all they could do to make ends meet, was to rely completely on others for help. And we put that in spiritual terms. That's us. We are spiritual beggars. We have nothing good of our own to bring. No righteousness of our own. 
We need the Lord to work in us. We are completely dependent on him to make us righteous, to make us like Christ. Martin Luther, I think, said it best. We are beggars. This is true. He's not usually this short on words, I promise. But I think this sums it up well. The next beatitude is akin to it. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this mourning is a personal grief over personal sin. When we recognize our state before the Lord and how desperate we are for his righteousness and his working in us, and we recognize the gravity and the weight of our own sin, we ought to mourn over our sin and recognize that we are the problem, you and me. It's not other people who are the problem. It's, it's me. I and my sin have been a part of the brokenness of this world. And that is an affront to our Father who loves us very much and who is perfectly holy and righteous. Luke, in his gospel, records one of Jesus' parables uh, about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And this is, uh, this is a fun one. Uh, if, if I can use the word cringy, I think that sums up this parable well. It says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. Yikes. Facebook. Um, (laughs) I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. He thinks pretty highly of himself, doesn't he? Uh, But this tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a picture of being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin. It's to recognize I have nothing good of my own to bring. My righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord, Isaiah said. That is our state without the Lord's working in us. And we are completely dependent on him for that. So our first step is to confess our spiritual bankruptcy. We have nothing good of our own to bring to the table. We need the Lord desperately. And then we move on to Matthew 5, 5. And it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is often kind of thought of as timidity or weakness or being soft or gentle, and that's not the picture here. Um, Psalm 37 gives us some clarity about what the meek are like. If I can get it to open here. Uh, Let me just give you a few highlights from Psalm 37. I encourage you to go back and read it this week. But it says, uh, the meek are those who trust in the Lord, who delight themselves in the Lord, who commit their way to the Lord, who are still and wait before him patiently who refrain from anger, who do not worry. And it says in verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is a foreshadowing of this promise that Jesus uh, was delivering here. The meek shall inherit the earth. So a meek person is one uh, who you could say is humble. That's another good word for this this word here, and it says, it's one who feels that he is a servant in relationship to God, and he subjects himself to him quietly and without resistance. Someone who is willing to do whatever the Lord asks him to do. Nothing is beneath him. There's no task that's too small or too humiliating for them to do if the Lord asks them to do it. 
It's just being willing to serve wherever he asks. And a similar beatitude is Matthew 5, 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So mercy here is about acts of mercy, doing things to help people in need, being concerned about people in their need. And the people who recognize their own deep need for God's mercy are the ones who also extend that to others, right? It's a recognition that other people need this just as much as I do, and I want to be a part of the solution. John Calvin said it this way, they are blessed who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also take on other people's to help them in distress, freely to join them in their time of trial, and as it were, to get right into their situation, that they may gladly expend themselves on their assistance. So I want, I want to do a little exercise with us this morning. Uh, I want you to just get in your head someone that you really dislike. <laughs> Maybe someone you disagree with vehemently about something. It could be uh, something lighthearted like Mizzou, or, um, <laughs> or it could be, you know, for me, it's a Steelers fan. Um, or it could be something more serious, you know, something political. It could be something ideological, okay? Get that person in your head for a second. And then when we go to Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, we have a little bit more of a picture of the offense that the, the Jews would have experienced when they heard him tell this story because the Samaritans, they called dogs and half-breeds because they had let other gods into their mix in the north. They were not pure Jews. And so they insulted them, they hated them, they thought less of them. And for Jesus to say that that Samaritan was the one who stopped and was the hero of the story was the biggest offense. So what Jesus is calling us to do is to love our enemies, right? Love the people who treat us poorly. In chapter 7, he talks about love your enemies because if you love only those who love you, what more do you do than the scribes and Pharisees? Even they do that. If you greet only those who greet you, the Gentiles even do that. What more are you doing? He's calling us to this greater righteousness, one that goes beyond expectations, beyond what is normal or common in our world. Because it's really easy to love the people who love us. It's really hard to love our enemies, isn't it? And to show them mercy, to get into their need and help them. And that's what he's calling us to do because that is a picture of the kingdom. That is a picture of what he did for us. In Romans 5, 8, but while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. So our next step here is to humble ourselves to serve, to love those who need our help, even if they're our enemies, to give ourselves away for the sake of others, to have this mind in ourselves that was also ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and dying on the cross in our place. That's the picture of this kind of service, this kind of showing mercy to others. And then we continue in, in verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we have a hard time maybe picturing hungering and thirsting like the first century 
folks did. But uh, not many of us have fasted for 40 days like Joe's example last week where he was offering the guy fries who had been fasting for 40 days. Um, (laughs) uh, But they were very aware of that reality of what it was like to be truly hungry, uh, to be truly desperate for food and feeling pain because they were so hungry. So this is a powerful image. This is the kind of longing we should have for righteousness and holiness. It says, these are grateful that God has forgiven them and accepted them as righteous, though they are sinful. Right? The, the doctrine of justification. Christ has made us righteous in him and identified us and made our status as righteous in him. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But they earnestly aspire for personal holiness. And this righteousness is not something that they achieve on their own. It's the result of transforming grace. The kind of righteousness we're after is not something that we can accomplish ourselves, but we need the Lord to do in us. We need it to plant in us. And that's what he says he will do in Isaiah 61. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He is going to plant his righteousness, make us trees that bear good fruit. He's going to do it. And because of that, he's going to be the one that gets the glory. And that's where it belongs. If we kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to make ourselves righteous, we can take the credit for it, can't we? But that's not what the Lord is trying to do here. He is planting it in us and making us more like Christ, that he may be glorified. He will satisfy that desire. And then in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, being pure in heart, uh, we often just think of as being clean, right? Uh, That's kind of the easy understanding of that. Uh, Psalm 24 gives us an explanation, a little more clarity about what he's talking about here. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, which he's talking about idols there, and does not swear deceitfully. So, The idea here is to sincerity, being without deceit, without being mixed up in anything else, without worshiping other gods, worshiping idols in our lives, speaking the truth. And John Stott says, their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. Purity of heart, uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, is to will one thing, to desire and want one thing. And the Lord wants us to delight ourselves in him and him alone, to seek after him and him alone. And he will take care of all the rest, he says. And the promise here is that when we are pure in heart, when God works this in us, that we will see him face to face. Moses and Elijah, two of the holiest men of all time, didn't get to see him face to face in all his glory here on this earth. But the promise is that we will experience that. We will get to see him face to face one day. What an amazing moment that will be. Again, this is something the Lord does in us. Uh, In Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And that idea of create is the same as Genesis 1. Create out of nothing this clean heart. I've got nothing, Lord. I need you to do it in me. So, The call is to crave God's righteousness. To not just settle for where we're at right now, but to ask God earnestly for more righteousness that reflects his glory and his honor to our world.
then he goes on, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Making peace is participating in the work of reconciling two alienated parties, taking two enemies and bringing them into a relationship of unity and harmony. This is what the Lord did for us, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that he reconciled us to the Father by making himself sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God. And then after that, it says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation to do the same for those around us, to tell people about Christ, number one. That's the primary way we make peace. We tell the people about the Lord and what he has done, how he died on the cross for their sins and reconciled them to the Father so that they may be reconciled and brought back in and adopted as sons and daughters. That's the first way we do that. But we also get into relationships where there's strife and conflict and we help to make peace there. And then when it involves us, when we've wronged somebody, we need to be the first to go and apologize and make it right and seek their forgiveness. And we need to be quick to extend forgiveness to the people who have wronged us. And then in 10, he continues in a similar way. He says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this isn't talking about being persecuted for something nasty you said to somebody. Okay? You've kind of earned it when we do that. (laughs) But this is for righteousness' sake. Walking in the way of Jesus. Walking like him. Loving like him. When we're persecuted for that, it's because our lives become an indictment on people who aren't walking with the Lord. And Jesus says that we're to rejoice and be glad when this happens. That's the idea of jumping and skipping for joy, which is not my first reaction when I think about this, right? That's not my inclination is to jump and skip for joy when I experience persecution from others. I remember right after I became a believer, uh, my friends on the school bus used to call me holy boy because I wouldn't do the stuff that we used to do together. And uh, my reaction was not jumping and skipping for joy, you know? (laughs) Um, But Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, He told uh, later in chapter 5, or in chapter 7, I'm sorry. No, chapter 5, I'm right. Um, That uh, when a Roman centurion would ask you to take his stuff one mile, right? They could do that. They could require the citizens of Israel to just carry their bags for a mile so they can get a break. And Jesus said, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. These were their enemies. They hated the Romans because they were just basically invaders in their land who had taken things over. But the Lord tells them, his disciples, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. Pray for them. Care for them. Show them an over and above kind of grace and love and mercy that they don't expect from you. They expect you to hate what they're asking you to do, but do it in kindness and love and go beyond what they ask you to do because that is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. That is a picture of what the Lord has done for you. So, he's calling us to seek peace and reconciliation, to be people who make peace who demonstrate his love and kindness, who pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, seek healing in relationships, and tell the world about what he's done. So my question for us today is, which of these four do we need to walk away with this week? Which, which of these four do we need to ask the Lord to do in us this week? 
Is it this one? Lord, I need you to help me be a person who makes peace, who seeks peace and reconciliation. Help me to love my enemies more and pray for those who persecute me. Do I need to be someone who craves God's righteousness? Lord, help me to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, to be like the deer that pants for the water so my soul longs after you, oh Lord. Do I I need you to do that in me, Lord? Do I need to humble myself to serve, be willing to step into people's suffering and help and do something to demonstrate the mercy that God has shown me and the kindness God has shown me? Or do I need to start at the beginning and confess my spiritual bankruptcy? Lord, I have nothing of my own to bring. Help me to understand that. Help me to mourn over my sin and see that I am the problem. The Lord might be nudging you right now and you might feel like you have an elbow in your side from him. Just, this is what I want you to grow in this week and this is what I want to do in you starting today. Ask the Lord to do these things. He loves to give these gifts to his children. And my prayer for us is that just as with my dad's watch, the Lord has given everything we need for life and godliness. godliness. He has given all the power, all the energy to it. His spirit is at work in you. And all he's asking us to do is put on Christ. He wants to do this in you. He loves you and wants you to be a reflection of his love for you to the world around you. And I pray that he would do that in each and every one of us as we go from here this week. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. We've got nothing of our own to bring to the table. We need your righteousness. You're working in us to make us more like Jesus. Lord, help us to put on Christ that the world would see what you're like. See your reflection in us as your kids. See a picture of what the kingdom is like. Help us to be people who confess our spiritual bankruptcy, who crave your righteousness, who humble ourselves to serve, and that nothing is beneath us to do, Lord, that we are willing to serve however you call us to. And help us to be people who seek peace and reconciliation around us and in our relationships. Lord, we need your help. We need you to do this in us. Make us more like Christ. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you, church. Have a great week this week. If you have some time, stick around. We're going to celebrate some baptisms here after the service.